So there's a, a famous uh, pastor preacher over across the pond in England named John Stott. And this is what he said about Jesus. He said, if you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody ever met Jesus Christ and had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus in the New Testament. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. They were afraid of him and wanted to run away. Or they were absolutely smitten with him and tried to give their whole lives to him. That word smitten is just English for love. Like you're just taken with him. You love him. You want to follow him. You see, either hated him, you feared him, or you loved him. With Jesus, the responses and reactions are always extreme. Now compare that to Mr. Rogers, okay? Now I'm not knocking Mr. Rogers. He was very formative for me as a kid. Told me I was special and I was valuable, and that's good stuff, right? He delighted children for over three decades, helped them grow in emotional intelligence and social skills. Fred Rogers might be at the top of the list for nicest guys who ever lived, right? Everybody likes Mr. Rogers. In fact, I tried to find, like just searching online, if there was any scandals. This guy was clean. There's like nothing out there on him. Nobody would ever kill Mr. Rogers. And at the same time, nobody would ever worship him either. You see, despite recent trends to make Jesus likable and more palatable, Jesus is not like Mr. Rogers. With Jesus, there's either offense or devotion. Hate or love, rejection or worship. And as we've been moving through Mark, we've seen opposition start to rise against Jesus. And now in this passage, we're going to see a stark increase. And this passage will be in Mark chapter 6 this morning. We're going to see a few things about opposition. The first is we'll see that opposition is inevitable. The second is that opposition is ultimately held accountable. And the third is we'll see why opposition is a tragedy. We'll see the inevitability, the accountability, and the tragedy of opposition in our text this morning. And not only that, we'll, uh, not only will we learn about opposition, we'll see what our response to it is supposed to be. So let's look with me um, in uh, uh, Mark chapter 6. We'll look at verse 1. We'll have the words up here on the screen. And just like Mandy read, here's what Mark says, the first three verses. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Last week, if you were with us, we saw a flurry of miracles with Jesus. Power on displays. We saw that he brought disaster and demons and disease and even death right to its knees. And from one form of suffering to another, Jesus shows that the king has power to reverse the curse and make all the sad things come untrue. And after this powerful display of ministry, Jesus leaves the Sea of Galilee and heads back to his hometown of Nazareth. See, these are his old stomping grounds. He knows the roads. He knows the storefronts. He knows everybody in the town. He grew up here, working right beside his father, Joseph, growing up as the oldest kid with a crew of brothers and sisters. 
And to say that Nazareth is an insignificant town would be an understatement. It's not even mentioned once in all of the Old Testament. In all of the historic and important Jewish literature of the day, Nazareth isn't even a blip on the radar. This was an obscure rural town in the rocky hillside with a total population of just under 500 people. My graduating high school class is more than the entire town of Nazareth. This wasn't the prominent place for anyone to be raised. No great leaders are coming out of this town. No future presidents are born there. In fact, one of the early disciples, Nathaniel, when his brother Philip said, hey, I've met the Messiah, you gotta come with me. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel looks at him and he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? When they arrive back to Nazareth, Jesus and his disciples, they head to the local synagogue and Jesus begins teaching. Hometown kid, back in town, hey buddy, come up here, give us the word today. See, Jesus never apprenticed under some prestigious rabbi, yet people were consistently amazed and impressed with his authority and the way that he could speak about God, with his charisma and his authority. But that amazement didn't lead them to belief in him or even desire to follow him. What did it say at the very end? It said they were offended by him. And so because they figured there's no way he could have gotten these truths, they start to speculate where he learned these things. You see, it's outside the realm of possibility for them that Jesus could actually know these things from himself, that the power for him to do all the works could actually come from God himself through him. They're basically accusing him of plagiarism. Like, where did he get all this good teaching? No way that kid came up with it. We know you. You're Mary's boy. We know your family. You're just a regular blue-collar tradesman like the rest of us. You know how to swing a hammer, but there's no way you know how to teach like that. There's no way someone as ordinary as you could ever do something extraordinary. That's what's running through their minds. And you'd think that even if strangers and the religious leaders who've rejected him so far, you think maybe the local people would receive him, right? Like, like he could be a hometown hero for them. But on the contrary, now his own people are added to the very long list of people who do not accept him or the validity of his claims and activity. Now let's look at uh, verse four. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And so he went about among the villages teaching. Now, so far in Mark's gospel, we've seen just about every type of person take offense at Jesus. The religious elite, both the far left and the far right, don't like him. Doesn't matter your political party. The Pharisees and the Herodians, who are at odds with each other, they can't stand Jesus. He offends the big leaders in the city and the common tradesmen of small towns. He offends the everyday Jew and the Gentiles. His own family thinks he's crazy, and now in his hometown, they're rejecting him. There's even times when Jesus offends his disciples. Opposition here comes in the form of unbelief. Did you catch that? It said, he marveled at their unbelief. They're rejecting the person of Jesus. They're offended by him, scandalized by him. That's what the word offended means. It means to be scandalized. So what's my point? And my point is this, 
opposition is inevitable. Jesus will offend every political view. He will offend every culture, every class, every morality. He'll offend the wealthy, the poor, the rural, the cosmopolitan, men, women, everyone. Now, he might offend those different groups in different ways, right? But there's not a people group or a demographic that is less offendable or more predisposed to receive Jesus in his fullness as he is. Because every human heart will find a way to find some reason to take offense at him. Everyone has a way of thinking that the way the, uh, of, of how the world should be, of how things should go. And when you come into contact with Jesus, you see, he likes to shake all those things up. And we get offended. Let me give you a couple of examples. So here in the West, in America, we hold up individual choice as, as a supreme value, don't we? That's like what it means to be American. We all have this intrinsic right to decide what is right and what's wrong for me. And so we say it like this. You do you, I'll do me. You ever heard that? That's like the, that's the, 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 uh, the tagline of the day. You do what's right for you, and I'll do what's right for me. Listen to this quote from The Atlantic magazine uh, from Kurt Anderson. I love The Atlantic. I think they have their pulse on the culture. Highly recommend reading that magazine. Look what Kurt says. He says, today, each of us is freer than ever to custom make reality, to believe whatever and pretend to be whoever we wish, which makes all the lines between actual and fictional blur and disappear more easily. Listen to this last line. Truth in general becomes flexible, personal, and subjective. I think he's nailed the American persona. The idea of Jesus as the only one, as the truth, as an exclusive God is an offense to the American mindset. Now, on the opposite side of that, you have cultures who are good with the exclusivity of God, but their ultimate value is based on moral performance. I obey and therefore I'm accepted. The way to be right with God is to do all these good things and then God will accept you. What has Jesus said so far? He said moral performance, pedigree, achievement, accolades, none of those are the basis for admittance into God's kingdom. It's by sheer grace. Why? Because no one deserves it. No one comes to the table already acceptable. The only way to get in is to be forgiven by God and accept it as a free gift. You cannot earn it. You see, the more you get to know Jesus, there will come a point where you're met with something that he says or does that will offend you. There will be something where Jesus says, give this up, or no, it doesn't go that way. You're gonna find some confrontation where it's either what you want, what you think, versus what Jesus says and what he thinks. It'll be the stumbling block right in front of you, and it'll seem scandalous. Part of coming to Jesus means we don't edit him to our preferences or mold him to our ideas or flavor him to our tastes. You guys know Thomas Jefferson, right? Kind of a big deal around here. You know what he did with his Bible? He took a, a, a scalpel, like a, a razor blade, and he would read through the New Testament. And when he got to a verse he didn't like, when he got to something that Jesus said, he was like, nah, I'm not good with that. He just cut it out. And at one point, the Bible was so flimsy because it had nothing left in it, he had to actually take another journal out and write what was left. And he actually published it, right? You can get this today. It's 
in Barnes & Noble right now on Amazon for you, right? It's, I actually kind of like the fact that he was bold about it. He's like, I know I'm editing Jesus. Here it is on display. Here's what I think is good about him. But we do it in a lot of subtle ways. This morning, what we need to know is that we either accept Jesus as he comes or we don't accept him at all. So let me ask you, is there a part of Jesus that offends you? Some, something about who he says and what he does that you're just prone to reject? Is there something about him that you've edited and changed in order to fix him and put him in your box? If you have, the word today is to repent, to turn away from that, to accept Jesus as he comes, not as we want him to be. Because here's why. An edited Jesus is without power to change you or transform you. Did you see what happened in the text? As the people become offended, as they don't, as, as their unbelief surges, Jesus marveled at it and all of his mighty power was restricted. You see, all throughout Mark, we've seen Jesus do powerful things. The very last passage has Jesus raising a 12-year-old little girl from the dead. And from there, he goes to Nazareth. And because of their unbelief, because of their desire to edit him, because of the offense, he's unable to do mighty works. And we've seen in Mark, he works through faith, even imperfect faith, which I find to be beautiful. You don't have to have perfect, amazing, monster, you know, mountainous kind of faith. Jesus takes the faith as small as a mustard seed, and he works powerfully through it. But you see, faith accepts Jesus as he presents himself, where opposition edits Jesus until he meets our preferences. And at that point, you don't have Jesus anymore. All you have is actually yourself. That makes sense? When you've edited Jesus to your preferences, you've just made him look just like you. Remember back in chapter four with the parable of the soils? So there's these different, you know, the, the sower goes out and he, uh, and he sows his seed, right? It says that the gospel will not produce spiritual growth where the capacity for, for response is barren, choked, or scorched. When it falls on that kind of soil, nothing can grow there. In the same way, Jesus will not produce miracles in the atmosphere of total unbelief and opposition. So how do we respond to this inevitability of opposition? If opposition is inevitable, then we gotta have proper expectations. We gotta first know we are prone to oppose Jesus. That's not primarily a problem out there. If you're thinking of, about all these people groups and types of people out there who are prone to edit Jesus, you've, you've, gone, you, you've, you've, you've not done the work in your own heart first. We have to first look internally and ask, where am I prone to edit Jesus? Where am I prone to, take the, to create the Jesus of my desires instead of the Jesus that he presents? And secondly, if opposition is inevitable, We've got to set proper expectations that when we go out into the world sharing the hope of, of Christ to others, there's going to be opposition. He's not going to be accepted widely and at first glance. We should be prepared knowing that Jesus himself faced opposition everywhere he went. Sometimes I'll, I'll talk with people and they go, man, I've, I've shared the gospel. People haven't received it. And I'm like, hey, you're in good company. Jesus did that all the time, right? He was perfect. He shared himself perfectly with people, and people still rejected him. That should give us great hope. Realistic expectations help us to be prepared and ready 
for everyday life. All right, let's keep going. So not only is there the inevitability of opposition, there's also accountability to it. Look with me at verse uh, 7. And he called the 12, this is Jesus, he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them, take nothing for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals and don't put two uh, on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a town, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off your feet that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so the disciples went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed. Okay, so Jesus, they leave Nazareth. He gathers up the disciples and he begins to send them out. Remember when he first called the disciples, he gave them kind of a job description. And he said to them that he was going to make them fishers of men. Right? Especially the first four, they were out there fishing for fish. And he said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then later he gave them a more filled out job description. And the first item on it, he said, was this. Your very first job as a disciple is this. Be with me. Be with me. Remember, being with Jesus precedes doing for Jesus. And then the second item on that job description is that there'd come a day when he would send them out to preach the gospel and serve those who have need. And so time has passed now and it's ready for the disciples to be sent out. Now this may surprise us at first because if you've been tracking with us in Mark, the disciples have been anything but exemplary. Like these guys have got it wrong more times than they've got it right. They don't have it all together. And that might matter if the, if the power of the gospel rested on them alone, Right? If the effectiveness of their ministry was based on their gifting and their power, then it would be absurd for Jesus to send them out. But they're going out with Jesus' power and with his authority. And in God's wisdom, he has chosen to use broken vessels like you and me to hold the water of life to a thirsty world. They don't go out with their own agenda. They don't go out with their own power. They go out in the power of Jesus himself. You see, disciples are never meant to gorge on Jesus, to to take his words to feast and stay put. We are not meant to just receive and personally benefit on our own. The entire thrust of being discipled is to prepare you to make disciples. That is like, you've ever seen those memes where uh, it says you had one job, right? And that's all these epic fails. Jesus is saying, you have one job. It's to make disciples, so you may have a job out there in the workforce where you go and you, 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 you have a trade or you, you sit in the cube, you do your thing. Yes, that's your job. Yes and amen. But if you're a believer in Christ, you have a job that supersedes that job, which is this, to make a disciples. And we see the disciples here that even in their infancy of their development, they're sent out in the power of God himself to fulfill his mission. And it doesn't depend on their perfection or on their merit but on the God who sends them. You see, God will accomplish his purposes. And we see here that Jesus sends them out two by two. I love that. We don't go out as lone rangers. He's sent out in community on mission. It's the biblical paradigm so that we have strength in community with our shared gifts and shared relationships so that we can mutually encourage one another. And they're also sent out with the barest of essentials. Why? They're supposed to trust in God's provision along the way. 
They're supposed to stay wherever they're received, not seeking better and more comfortable accommodations. Now, I don't think this is an exact list that we're supposed to go like, okay, if I were to go on a mission trip, I've got to have a tunic on, only a staff, don't bring any money. I don't think that's, this is descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? But I do think there's a principle to be learned here. Here's the lesson. We don't have to have all the right answers. We don't have to have an abundance of supplies and provisions. Yes, be thoughtful and be prepared, but I think sometimes in our desire to be overly prepared that we have paralysis by analysis. You know what I mean by that? We so overthink the thing itself that we actually never go do anything. Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's urgent. Grab some supplies and get out there. Trust that I'll provide for you along the way. The example of the ill-prepared disciples should encourage us this morning. Because if you're like me, I often feel underprepared and ill-equipped to be used by the Lord for his work. And that's simply not true. Prepare as best as you're able. Feast on God's word. Then with hearts of faith and humility, go. Here in the greater Boston area, we don't have to go far to find people who are lost, right? We live in a, in a city that, that once might have been a, a city on a hill, kind of a bastion for the gospel, and that slowly declined over the last few decades. We all know neighbors and networks, friends and family, people who are far from the kingdom of God, who are hopeless, looking around for meaning and life and a place to be. We get to go out and draw them in where neighbors can really become family. Now, did you notice in this text how Jesus prepares them for opposition? He tells them that there are gonna be some places they go that don't receive them. And when they do, what are they supposed to do? Shake the dust off their feet and move on. You see, that the uh, opposition here is described as apathy. It's, Jesus said, if they won't receive you or even listen to you, right? That's just a, a complete attitude of apathy. It's like, hey man, I don't even wanna hear what you have to say. Jesus says, when people don't wanna hear You are not held accountable for that. They are. Shake the dust off your feet. Everyone is responsible for hearing the gospel and responding. Now hear me when I say this. That doesn't mean be a jerk about it. All right? It doesn't mean like give them the double bird and say, man, deal with God, man. I shared with you the gospel. I'm out of here. No, 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 no. Be kind. Be gentle in our posture, right? Just like Jesus was. But you can walk out without the weight of them on your shoulders. You've been faithful to share. That's all that is asked of you. We're called to be faithful to share and let God and trust God for the outcomes. See, that's what excellence is. It's doing our very best and trusting God for the results. In face of opposition, we are called to persevere and continue on his mission. When Jesus faced opposition, did he go sulk in the corner and cry about it? Nope. He took his disciples, he gathered them up, he gave them what they needed, and he sent them out to multiply his mission through the power of exponents. We are not responsible for how people respond. Every single individual is responsible for that. There's accountability in that. That's not our responsibility. All right, let's look at the last section to see the tragedy of opposition. So, so, so far we've seen that opposition is inevitable. So far we've seen that opposition will be held accountable. That's not on you. Now let's see the tragedy. Look with me at verse 14. 
King Herod heard of it. That is Jesus going about and doing his mission. For Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I've beheaded, has been raised. Okay, here's what's going on. Jesus has sent the disciples out and they've started to gain some traction. And Mark tells us that Herod heard about it. Now, a couple things you need to know about Herod. He was the ruler of Galilee at this time. Okay, so the region where Jesus is doing all of his preaching and his ministry, Herod is like the governor over it. And so word and buzz is going around and he hears about it. Now, this Herod, Herod can be kind of confusing in the Bible. There's like seven Herods, okay? Popular name. This Herod is son of Herod the Great, um, whose kingdom when he died was divided into four regions. Now, Herod's family, you can read about him in some of the uh, Jewish and Roman um, uh, ancient uh, history material. His family line is like the stuff of soap operas and late night premium cable channels, okay? It's a mix of keeping up with the Kardashians and Game of Thrones, all right? That's his family line. Herod himself was a tyrant. He was ruthless. He was shrewd. He was a lover of money and power. He was bloodthirsty. He was a real dirtbag. And up until this point in Mark, we heard that Jesus was imprisoned. And then chapter after chapter after chapter has gone, and we haven't really heard anything else about John the Baptist. And right now we hear that not only was he imprisoned, but that uh, King Herod had him beheaded. Now Herod is hearing about Jesus, and he's having this conversation about who this guy is, right? Herod believes ultimately that Jesus is John the Baptist kind of reincarnated or raised from the dead. Now what I'm about to read to you is a flashback of how, that, uh, how it was that John was beheaded, okay? Look with me at verse 17. This is the flashback. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Uh-oh. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John. And knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Okay, here's what's going on. Herod divorced his wife so that he could marry his brother's wife, Herodias. See, they had this side fling going on, and each of them decided that they would divorce their spouses so that they could get married. Basically, Herod steals the wife of his brother, Philip. Oh, and did I mention? Herodias is both of their nieces. Okay? I told you, stuff of soap operas, right? In Jewish eyes, even in Roman eyes, on every level, this was both adulterous and incestuous. And John, being this righteous prophet, kept speaking out publicly against the marriage. You got to remember, in Rome, there's no freedom of speech. There's no Bill of Rights. There's no First Amendment. So they hear that he's speaking out against them, and John is arrested and put in prison for his moral crusade. Now, Herodias, the wife, wanted him dead, right? He's out there speaking bad against them. She's like, just take him out. But Herod feared John and his following. A lot of people loved John and his ministry, and Herod doesn't want to, to cause an uprising. And he knew that if he put John to death, it would upset the Jewish people. And so he can't kill him, 
but he also can't let him go free either, right? He's stuck between fear of his wife and fear of the people. And so Mark tells us that Herod, while John was in prison, would go down to the prison cell and have these conversations with John. There's something about John that draws him in, but something holds him back from taking what John says to heart. So look what happens in verse 21. An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a great banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when, uh, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, hey, what should I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oath that he made and his guests, and he did not want to break his word to her. So immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took the body and laid it in a tomb. There's no getting around the seediness of this passage. It's the stuff of tabloids and celebrity gossip talk shows, right? It's political scandal filled with strippers and booze and religious intrigue, vindictive wives and bearded prophets. You see, so far in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus has dinner with people, he invites any and all to the table. Sins are forgiven and the lame are healed. When Herod throws a party, sin is encouraged and people die. According to Mark, Herod imprisoned John for criticizing his marriage. Now Herod throws this big birthday party and invites all the well-to-do and kind of the important leading figures in Galilee. And for entertainment, he has his stepdaughter dance for everyone. Her name is Salome, we learn from Josephus. She's a mid-teen, around 16 years old. We can only imagine what kind of dance she danced that would make Herod give up half his kingdom to this young teenager. I can assure you this is not ballroom dancing. This makes daytime soap operas look like Sesame Street. So after she dances, Salome goes to her mother and says, hey, I can get like half the kingdom here. What should I ask for? Herodias, who's been nursing this animosity against John, with calculating patience, seizes the opportunity without any regard for the honor of her daughter, says, bring me John's head. Her daughter was simply a pawn in her scheme to get vengeance on John. And now Herod is faced with this dilemma, right? I've just promised all this in front of all these people. I can't appear to be weak. And at the same time, I don't really want to kill John. The opposition here is gruesome and it's tragic. And so what happens? Herod has John beheaded. John the Baptist had called Herod to righteousness and repentance and it cost him his head. John knew the cost of speaking out against Herod. He's not a fool. He wasn't aware of the potential consequences. What we need to see here is that the cost of following Jesus is put in no uncertain terms of what can happen to you. 
John's death is certainly tragic. I think you would agree. But what I want us to see this morning is that the greater tragedy in the story is actually Herod. See, Herod was devoted to power, devoted to control, and all that comes with it. He's so very powerful. At the, at the drop of a hat, at his word, he can have a man executed. But when you're that powerful, by nature, you will also be incredibly fearful. Here's what I mean. He has built his entire identity on the foundation of his power, and it's become his God. You see, whatever our hearts cling to and rely upon for security, that's our God. It's the one thing you dream about having, and it's the one thing you have nightmares about losing. It's the one thing that if you lost it, you'd feel like life wasn't worth living. See, there's this principle in the world. Whatever you build your identity on, you will fear having it taken away from you. So if you build your life on money, on job, on your physical health, on relationships, on children, on spouse, whatever you build your life upon, you will live in fear that it will be taken away from you. Do you see that theme of fear in Herod's life as we were reading that text? His life is characterized by petrifying fear. Every decision he makes in this story is driven by fear. Did you notice that? There's not a decision Herod makes that's like uh, coming out of his own desire. He's always moving from one place of fear to another. He arrests John out of fear of John stirring up the people against him as he's speaking out against his marriage. And he can't kill him because he fears John and the people rising up. But he wants to kill him because of his wife, because he fears her. And now he makes this oath to give his stepdaughter whatever she wants. And he fears not executing John because of the people at the party. See, the great tragedy in Herod's life is that he knew there was something different about John. And he'd go down to the prison and talk with him, hear him talking about the kingdom of God. And you gotta believe, right, what they're talking. John's not one of those chit-chatty kind of guys, right? I mean, he's like an eccentric, he's got, a one, he's got one mission. And you know that when they're having these prison-side conversations, that he's talking to them about the kingdom of God and repenting and turning his life to Jesus. It's what John was all about. But Herod's fear of losing his power in his rule kept him from accepting Jesus and following him. And as he rejects John, hear me, he's not just rejecting John, he's actually rejecting Jesus. And now after John is dead, Herod's looking over his shoulder because he thinks John has been raised from the dead. His whole life is gripped by fear. And he's rejected the one person who can actually free him from his fears and give him a real life. See, even in the face of extreme opposition, we have hope. See, John faced the extreme end of opposition, didn't he? He lost his very head. But his story, just like our story, doesn't end in tragedy, even if it ends in death. Why? Because our hope is in the one who is able to conquer death. John's execution points forward to Jesus, right? John was a forerunner, the one who prepared the way for Jesus. And as John is executed, he prepares the way for Jesus as well. You see, both John and Jesus were wrongly arrested and sent to death at the hand of a corrupt politician who was too spineless to stand up to a crowd. But like John, Jesus' death doesn't end in a tragedy, but in triumph because he didn't stay dead.
I know this is kind of like giving away the end of the gospel of Mark, but he doesn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, defeating death on our behalf. That's why as Christians, even in the face of extreme opposition, the Christian can have hope that nothing, not even death, can oppose us. Opposition, friends, is inevitable. We serve a Jesus who offends because humanity wants something other than what God gives them. Our, first, our, our response is to first make sure that we haven't edited Jesus to our own preferences. And as we make disciples, we need to go, up and, and as we make disciples in the everyday uh, walk of our life, we need to go remembering that as we bring light to dark places, there are going to be people that oppose us. They oppose us because they oppose Jesus. So we need to set proper expectations as we go. We also need to take that weight off of our shoulders that people's receiving God's word is not on you. Everyone will be held accountable for how they um, respond to Jesus. And finally, it should free us up to persevere while on mission because we know ultimately our story doesn't end in tragedy. There's no way that death can stop us because Jesus conquered death and pushed through it. Let me pray.